Good evening, everybody. Hi. My name is Michelle Dezember, and I'm the Chief Program Officer here at the Aspen Art Museum. I cannot believe how many people made it through this weather. I actually am really grateful that John Paco made it here through this weather. Um, this has definitely been a very snowy season for us, so thanks for taking advantage of being here for some indoor adventures um, with our architecture lecture series kicking off. Um, we're very excited to be presenting this and grateful to the Questrom Education Fund for making this lecture free. Also, a big thanks to David Johnson Architects for making our 2018-19 series possible. Um, as many of you know, is the tradition, we have an architect from our local community come to provide the introduction to our speaker. And so we wanted to kick off this special series with uh, Rich Carr is going to provide the introduction for us today. Um, he is, I'll provide introduction to him. It's really important to kind of mention one of the favorite connections that we have with Rich, which is that his firm was the um, architect of record of this building. So we're very grateful to CCY and our longstanding relationship. Um, Rich's background in planning provides an in integrated approach to design, synthesizing finely detailed architectural design with a broader focus on placemaking, which we'll be hearing a lot about tonight as well. Rich received his Bachelor of Architecture degree from Cornell University's College of Architecture, Art, and Planning after studies in Berlin and Vienna. He's been practicing architecture and planning in the Roaring Fork of Colorado for more than 20 years, and he's now, he is, the, um, like I mentioned, partner at CCY Architects. Um, Rich will provide the intro introduction to John, who then has a really wonderful presentation prepared for us this evening, and then we'll have a Q&A to follow at the end. So please join me in welcoming Rich up to the stage. Thank you, Michelle. Well, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the Aspen Art Museum. This program has been going for 11 years now. We've had over 30, I shouldn't say we, they, have over, over 30 architects lectured series we were counting up before we, you know. So that's pretty amazing that it's gone on that long and it's so successful. And the quality and caliber of the architects that have been here is really pretty remarkable. It's a world-class group of people we've been able to attract to Aspen. So again, shout out to the Aspen Art Museum. Thank you guys. Um, I'm thrilled to have the pleasure to introduce John, today's speaker. Uh, John is uh, the founder with Patricia of Patco Architects from Vancouver, Canada. John founded Patco Architects with Patricia in 1978. He holds a Master of Architecture degree from the University of Manitoba. He is a fellow of the Royal Architecture Institute of Canada, an honorary fellow of the American Institute of Architects, as well as the Royal Institute of British Architects. He is also a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects, a member of the Royal Canadian Academy of Art, and a member of the Order of Canada. Um, John and his practice uh, have really been, I think, a huge and important part of elevating architecture and excellence in general in Canada. The whole discourse of architecture has been elevated. Uh, many people have felt tremendously by his practice and in, in, in their work really in North America. Uh, he has a long list of uh, accomplishments and awards, including the Royal Architecture Institute of Canada's gold medal. Um, one thing in, in preparing for this, obviously it took some time to look through his work. I have not seen many of his projects, but there is one that I'm particularly fond of in Whistler. Um, but J John, in his, in his firm's work, I think is particularly relevant to a lot of the projects that we and others here in the Rocky Mountains partake in, in the kind of landscapes that we work in. 
So there's a lot of parallels with some of the work that our firm is doing and others here in Aspen and across the West with a lot of the inspiration I've seen out of what John's doing. Um, so I think there's a lot of really compelling things he'll be talking about today, and again, I'm not going to give up too much. Um, so Paco Architects delivers on a wide variety of project types. They cover a tremendous range. We had a real interesting discussion comparing what we do and what they do and how much we enjoy the variety. We both enjoy the variety of much smaller, more sculptural projects to much larger and having impact on a much larger scale. And John was mentioning how they enjoy very much partnering with sometimes much larger firms for much larger projects across North America and how satisfying that is coupled with their design research program. Um, notable projects include uh, the Temple of Light on Kootenay uh, Bay in British Columbia, the Thunder Bay Art Gallery in Ontario, and one of my favorites is the O'Dane Art Museum that's in Whistler, BC. And I had a chance to go visit that when I was up there with my son uh, ski competing for him, uh, and particularly impressed with the quality of that project. And uh, the use of wood is particularly strong. I think the play and focus on light is very, very strong. Um, and the interplay in a lot of their projects between architecture and nature or landscape is very, very compelling and, and not easy to do well, like I think John and his team has been able to do. Um, they have a new book out. Is, is that fairly new, John? Yeah? Uh, and it's a collection of their architectural research. It's called Material Operations and it's by the Princeton Architectural Press. So that's something if some of those of us want to investigate more, I think we will want to get that book. So please join me in welcoming John, and uh, let's enjoy his presentation. So thank you. You're going to need this. Thank you, Rich. It's a great pleasure to be here. I've enjoyed my day and great weather, too. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a bit of a verbal background before we launch into lots and lots of, of images. Uh, and so um, let me just grab my notes here. So what I'm going to show this evening um, uh, basically is uh, some of the projects we've done in the, about the last decade. And I've divided the presentation into two parts. The first is a series of building projects which were commissioned by clients. And the second is a series of research projects which we've done uh, mainly through uh, self-initiation. And the title of the lecture, Work and Play, is intended to reflect the duality in the nature of these two project types, uh, both in terms of intention and circumstance, but also, I think, more interestingly, to reflect the ambiguous distinction between work and play when both are driven by passion and curiosity. So I'd like to start see if I can make this work. Uh, no, make this work. Yes. Did I, am I doing something wrong? Okay. There we go. I, I understand. Okay, so uh, our building projects um, are sort of uh, our starting point. Uh, the research work is something that's evolved out of those building projects. And I would say that our building projects are focused on um, a few sort of fundamental um, points of view. Um, 
And those points of view have evolved over the 30 some years of our practice, or almost 40 years of our practice, uh, and uh, began with what we called found potential. And by found potential, I mean those aspects of site, climate, building context, program, local culture, and the relationships between them that facilitate the development of an architectural order which is evocative of circumstance. The result of this approach is that individual projects often take on distinct identities, and as a consequence, uh, our projects tend to be very dissimilar one from the other. There's a great variety because they are all attempting to respond to the situation in which they find themselves, whether that's a physical situation or a cultural situation or an economic situation. And for us, this is an appropriate thing that the work is so diverse. It simply reflects the diversity within which we find ourselves. However, uh, with time, and we've certainly had time, uh, we came to understand that architecture does not arise directly and unbidden from circumstantial considerations. A synthetic act of imagination is required. And this act of imagination can take many forms. For us, and this is uh, different from, for all architects, it is most commonly an expression of cultural purpose, of environmental response, and of construction and technology. And the more inclusive the imagination is to the diversity of circumstances which surround the project, the more complete the work of architecture. And finally, there's the issue of craft. For us, craft is intellectual in the first instance. It is a construction of ideas, a rigorous set of relationships which form an armature for the ongoing development and elaboration of a project. Craft is also aesthetic, the, the product of the sensibility of mind and eye. And finally, craft is physical, the material product of the mind and the hand and the hand's extension through technology. And like the act of imagination from which architectural project is formed, I believe that the more inclusive the craft, the more complete the work of architecture. And so now let's move on to a couple of houses. And I think these houses, uh, because of their situation and their difference, uh, will illustrate uh, the principles that I uh, just elaborated. And so the first house in, uh, is uh, a house on Salt Spring Island. Salt Spring Island is uh, just off the west coast of British Columbia. Uh, it's a very temperate uh, location which has a climate not too dissimilar from parts of Northern California. It's sheltered by mountains on Vancouver Island and so it doesn't get the rain that the west coast typically gets. Uh, and typically has a very sort of uh, benign uh, temperature range. And this project is located on, a, on what, was, what is called a farm. It's really not a farm. It's a, just a large property that has some hay growing on it so it can qualify for some tax benefits. But uh, it's, it's on a farm. Uh, and this is the situation of the property before we began. And it, uh, if I, we had a... Uh, there's a house, and there's a studio, and a, a utility building, and a barn. Uh, and then an existing row of mature Douglas fir trees, and then a cultural landscape of fruit trees. This farm was uh, established by some uh, uh, German immigrants uh, who lived there for many years, and our clients 
uh, purchased it when they retired. And so the first thing that we did was we uh, decided to uh, remove the house, the small structure, uh, and what we actually did was uh, uh, sold it to uh, some neighbors who moved it and simply relocated it down the road. And then within that, we inserted a linear house. We call this the linear house, and it's called the linear house for good reason because it's uh, 300 feet long and 16 feet wide. And so uh, it has uh, anything that's long has a huge advantage uh, proportionally. Uh, it, uh, there's uh, lots and lots of, uh, of things that develop uh, as a consequence of that. And so here you see that this long, 300 foot long uh, bar of building has a division in the middle, which is a uh, uh, breezeway, which divides it into a principal house and a guest house. And then the cultural landscape uh, was reinforced with trees and vegetables because the people who bought the property, our clients, were phenomenal chefs and very, very interested in food. In fact, they have four different types of ovens in their kitchen uh, so that they can do all the things that they want to do. And so that is the strategy for the house. And so this is the floor plan of the house. And you can see it's really just a line of rooms, one on the other, uh, connected by a walkway which runs along the uh, uh, south side of the house. And maybe one of the most unusual things, aside from the fact that the rooms are 16 feet wide and the house is 300 feet long, is that we have over 40 skylights in the roof of the house, but most of those skylights, I think there are only four that shine into the interior of the house. The remaining 36 skylights shine into the roof assembly. And I'll explain what that does uh, in a moment. And so here is a building section. And for those of you who can read architectural drawings, what you can see is there is an interior envelope and a structure and a skylight that doesn't project through. And this is representative of those skylights that are not shining into the interior. They're shining into the building envelope. And what that does is it uh, allows us, because the interior surface of the building is translucent plastic. So when you see the images, you might think that this is a white painted drywall interior. It's not. It's an extruded plastic sheet, which allows the light from all these skylights to shine into the house. And then at night, those lights are replaced by uh, artificial illumination in the same spot. Further, uh, the long length of the house has uh, retractable walls, just I mean, like these walls in the, in the gallery here. We have uh, an 80 foot long uh, wall which retracts fully. So the upper drawing shows the glazing units and the lower ones show it open. And uh, on top of that, it's a wood structure. And so the 80 foot span is a wood span, uh, which uh, is made uh, using a, a composite structure of plywood and glue lamb beams. And so here you get the uh, uh, result of that. You could, this is looking uh, from across the dining room uh, with the doors open, looking to the, uh, Douglas, the row of Douglas fir trees. And you can see the lights shining from the skylights that repeat the pattern of the light through the trees on the lawn outside. And so the, your experience of this dappled tree shade light uh, carries through from the exterior into the interior. And you can also see that this window, which is 80 feet long and open, 
uh, and uh, the weather in in uh, this uh, on, in uh, Salt Spring Island is benign for long periods of time, and so you can live in the house as an open pavilion uh, for uh, much of the spring, summer, and fall. And here you see the house from a distance, or not see the house from the distance. In fact, we had to Photoshop the house to make it a little lighter so that you could see it. It actually is virtually, it's a 300 foot long house that you cannot see when you're standing in the meadow below it, which was our intention. We definitely wanted this house to, in a sense, disappear. And it's a strategy that we like to use to take the color of tree shade as the color of the building so that it become in when we're working in natural landscapes so that the house simply sort of is subsumed uh, into the background of the forest and so looking along uh, that long wall and you can see here that there are panels of this cladding system which is a it's a, a fiber cement panel from switzerland called swiss pearl and comes in this particular uh, charcoal gray color among many others and we tipped a lot of those panels perpendicular to the house, which is where the windows are stored when, they, when the walls are open. So to obscure that stack of, of stored glazing units uh, on the exterior of the house. And you can see how the light, uh, even though this is a very dark surface, it's remarkable how the light plays on that surface. You'd think that a white surface would, be, uh, the, would make that work the best, but the dark, dark surface uh, is very successful in that regard. And here you can see another view looking into the interior of the house. And then we have very significant cantilevers over a terrace on the one end and a carport on the other end of the house. And so here, and as I say, it's a, this is a wood frame structure. And so moving along the south side of the house, there is a walkway which connects to the house. And you can see here, when you open the uh, windows on, or the doors on both sides of the house, it is literally an open air pavilion, which uh, you can enjoy uh, for uh, great periods of time. And one other benefit, there is very few insects because this is largely a salt water environment. We're on an island, and so we don't have to worry about uh, bug screens and things of that nature in this situation. And this is one of the four ovens. It's a, a pizza oven that's uh, embedded in the concrete mass, which has fireplaces on both sides. And so looking across the dining room through the kitchen, the master bedroom, and again, you can see the light uh, shining through the uh, roof and wall assembly, uh, the shower, uh, looking through the uh, breezeway uh, that joins the guest facility and the main house and some of the guest rooms. The second house I'm going to talk about is, in, uh, is also on an island off the west coast of British Columbia, but a much more northerly one. This is on Tula Island, or Quadra Island, rather. Uh, and it's called the Tula House because it's the, not only the residence, but also the headquarters for a foundation which our clients uh, uh, established, uh, which uh, sponsors uh, environmental issues. And so this is a view of the site, or the view from the site, uh, looking across uh, the Strait of Georgia to the mainland of British Columbia. And it's a very complex site. Uh, we call the house the five-site house because there are so many different characteristics. There's 
the Douglas fir forest mixed with uh, uh, big leaf maples, which go a beautiful luminous yellow in the fall. There's a tidal basin on the south of the house. There's the open water, uh, which has, is quite violent, has significant storms uh, to the east. There's a really bare mound of rock, uh, as well as the last uh, landscape, which is the beach below the house, which has, um, uh, which is subject to these tremendous storms. And so there are logs and all sorts of flotsam and jetsam that have been deposited on there in a very sort of changing and dynamic pattern. And it's interesting. So the, obviously you have the great view and you take advantage of that. But for us, the beach below was uh, in some ways the inspiration for the house. And we decided that what we would do would be to make the plan form of the building uh, uh, complex in its geometry in sort of as a reflection uh, of this beach. And so uh, the house begins with the, with the site, with some stone walls which we constructed to protect the approach to the house from a very steeply sloping uh, cliff-like condition. Uh, then we introduced uh, reinforced concrete walls which start to define the primary space. And then all the secondary spaces that sort of are the eddies around the flow of that primary space are developed into bedrooms and uh, kitchen and service rooms. Uh, then the floor uh, and roof gets inserted as uh, almost in the manner of the uh, bits and pieces on the beach below in uh, triangles. And that uh, What's going on? Okay, so the, and so that uh, brings us to the house. And here, looking down uh, from the rock above, you can see how this language has been transformed into the building. So moving down the road into the compound of the house, there is a, the where you leave the cars, and then you move on into a courtyard. And from that courtyard, you can see the bare mound of rock behind, and there's a pool which is in this courtyard which is actually just uh, capturing the groundwater that's moving from the slopes above to the ocean below and so this is not recirculated or treated water it's simply the water that is naturally flowing through the site. Uh, looking along the connection from where you leave your car to the main portion of the house you can see through uh, past the dining room uh, and living room to the view beyond. Uh, the kitchen is a, one of the sort of uh, eddies that spills off of this space and you can see the kitchen uh, beyond which is here and the kitchen is, uh, overlooks the uh, tidal basin. Uh, and the notion here, and you can't really see it, but all of the different components of the kitchen are different geometries at different angles as if they were washed up uh, on the beach, uh, like the logs and rocks below. And then moving into the dining room, which is also the boardroom, uh, and looking into the entrance to the bedrooms, and windows in the bedroom are de deliberately low to drive your view into the landscape and into the uh, uh, immediate uh, context to give you a sense of intimacy with the landscape as opposed to the big scale views that you get from uh, other spaces. Uh, one of the, uh, this is the uh, guest bathroom. And one of the things that I should say is this is a, 
the interior of the house is reinforced concrete. Uh, and we wanted the house, I mean, it's like, it's like a gallery in the sense that it's many, many hard surfaces. But we wanted the house to have the acoustic warmth of a rich uh, interior. And so we developed all of the ceilings and many of the walls uh, that were not the primary concrete walls as acoustically absorbent. And so when you're in the house, it sounds uh, very resonant or very warm. There is uh, uh, lots of absorption. And so you don't uh, experience the kind of uh, hardness of space that you would normally experience in a, in a house that was made of the materials that you see here. And so this is a portion of the house that is cantilevered over the edge of a cliff. And you see that we've switched to a different framing system. So the portion of the house that's on land is reinforced concrete walls, bearing walls, sitting on the ground. And when you step off the edge of the site onto the living room, you step onto a steel-framed wood floor, uh, which gives you uh, uh, different uh, information about where you are. In fact, in this uh, floor, we have some glass, large glass panels, like the one on the right-hand side, which allow you to see down to the beach below. So when the beach is storming, when the, when the logs are being driven up onto the beach, when the waves are crashing, you can look down and watch all of that happening. And at the same time, in this triangle, which is a little bit more uh, over the rock, uh, occasionally you can look down and we've got some beautiful images of deer looking up into the interior from uh, the rock below. Little study uh, behind that wall, looking back across uh, to along the coast, uh, and then across the living room to uh, a small uh, outdoor balcony, and then moving out uh, uh, around the house, and you can see how it is projected beyond the edge of the rock, uh, which you see here, uh, and, uh, and uh, hovers. Uh, on the, uh, and so the, the glass floors that you see there and there, you can see up into the interior of the house. And similarly, you can see down to what's below. And so here, this final view looking along the uh, coastline. And if you go at night, you can see that there are no other dwellings. There's no light. Uh, in this entire stretch of coastline, this building is the only thing. It's a very remote location. And the owners who live here only live here in the winter. In the summertime, it's pleasant. So they go further north so that they can avoid that uh, good weather. <laughs> okay. So um, I think these, the two houses have, obviously, they have a lot of principles in common, but they have a lot of differences by virtue of the different situations that they find themselves. The same is true with our larger buildings. And so I'm going to show you two museum projects. I'm going to show you the Odain Art Museum, which is in Whistler. And the Odain Art Museum, I should tell you a little bit about. Um, uh, Michael Odain is a, a very successful building developer in Vancouver who has a passion for art. Uh, and he has a very diverse collection. But uh, within that collection, he has a very significant collection of uh, uh, art from British Columbia. And that art from British Columbia spans uh, several centuries, going back several hundred years with First Nations masks, 
which he has a very significant collection of, to uh, uh, contemporary art uh, by artists like Jeff Wald and Rodney Graham and, and Ken Lum. And so there is a huge diversity of uh, art that is all, all comes from British Columbia, which is what this museum is dedicated to. And so the parts of Michael's collection which are not from British Columbia are not in this uh, gallery. It's strictly his British Columbia collection. And when he uh, was looking for the site, uh, he wanted a site which had trees. He said it was really important to him that the building had trees, and I'm really pleased that he had that point of view because in searching for the site, he ultimately settled on this site in Whistler, and you can see the slopes, the ski slopes coming down to the Whistler village, and his site is just off of the Whistler village, which you see here. The site was donated by the municipality of Whistler. It was a former municipal works yard. And so this is, if they were hauling a car away, they would store it in this site. If they were storing a pile of gravel or, uh, or equipment or various things, this site was the catch-all for everything that the municipality was doing. Fortunately, they were doing this all on the ground plane and they left the trees that were on that site in place. And, and so when uh, uh, Michael saw the site, he uh, chose it among the sites that he was considering because of the existence of those trees. And I think that was uh, both a, a, an important personal decision, but also it was a very important decision for the art that was on exhibit, the permanent collection, because uh, the art from British Columbia has a long tradition of being tied to landscape. And so we have all the First Nations art, but we also have uh, artists like Emily Carr and E.J. Hughes and many of the artists until the present day who have been uh, focused on the landscape. And putting the building within the landscape was central to our concept, which was to open the building to the landscape the curators insisted that there would be no natural light within the galleries because it was a permanent collection which would be there for the long term and they didn't want to deal with the impact of uh, uh, ultraviolet. And so um, the building is organized into uh, lobby, uh, entry, porch, permanent collection and then temporary exhibition at the far end and the temporary exhibitions obviously are very diverse in their character. But what this allowed us to do was to uh, make, uh, uh, to organize the building in such a way that when visiting the permanent collection, you could step out, even though we weren't, we didn't have any connection to natural view and light within the gallery space, it was very easy to move out to get a, into the principal circulation system of the building to be in contact with the forest and meadow that we created on the site. And so here you see the building in cross-section. You can see that you approach the building from a high point on a bridge, and the building is located in a floodplain. And we were required to elevate the building above the one in 2,500 year flood, which I guess is playing it safe, um, and have very little on the ground. And so we just have a, a few uh, uh, piers that come down every, I think it's about every 70 feet, uh, there's a touchdown point and the, it's really a bridge that we've constructed for the museum above. The, uh, this is really a dike which protects 
Whistler Village from the floods, and so we're building out beyond the protected area into the floodplain because that's where the trees were. Uh, and further, because of the enormous amounts of snow that Whistler gets, the, uh, about 15 feet of accumulated snow over the winter, uh, the roof is very strongly pitched to shed that snow. And so here you see uh, the building in cross-section. Uh, the, the organization is very simple. Uh, the exhibition is on the main floor by and large, and administration is on the second floor within the roof. Uh, and then there are some additional uh, exhibition spaces where beyond the space needed by the back of house and administration. And so here you see a view from the meadow. And what we did was, uh, you can see that wherever the dark shell of the house, or of the, of the museum, and the museum is a dark color for the, exactly the same reason that the houses were a dark color, so that from the village it disappears. When you're looking at the museum, what, all you see is the trees that surround the museum with the exception of a few moments. And one of those moments is the walkway that connects all of the spaces on the main level, which you see, which is wood clad. Uh, and then the other is the entrance. And here you see at the end of the bridge, you see that the entrance portal, uh, which is an outdoor porch, which allows you to walk through the building and then down to the meadow beyond, as well as entering the building, is also a wood clad uh, space. And so here now you're leaving uh, Whistler Village proper, you're crossing the bridge which uh, r rises to the museum, the aperture for the uh, entrance to the museum as well as the connection down to the ground plane below is lined with uh, hemlock which is a, a common uh, species uh, in this region. And then uh, from below uh, there is a large amphitheater-like stair which connects you from the porch down and from the ground plane here below up to the entrance uh, of the building. And so here you can see that uh, areas that are protected as well as visible are clad with wood, whereas the remaining part of the building is clad with this dark material so that it basically disappears uh, into the interior of the building. And here you can see how the building is literally spanning across the site to allow the flood to uh, race through the site uh, whenever that one in 2,500 year event occurs. Looking back down to the ground plane, and there's a large skylight in this area to bring light uh, into this wood-lined uh, interior. And then moving into the lobby, the lobby focuses across to the existing trees that were on the site, and so here you can see that it's actually quite interesting to be up a level because you catch the trees in a very different place. And when you're walking along the walkway, so I'll just move along here, but you can see that you catch the trees at a mid-level, uh, which is uh, really interesting. And then when you're looking back down, you can have an overview of the landscape uh, as you walk along this corridor. And this corridor connects you to the permanent collection on the left and the temporary exhibition area uh, at the end toward the right. And so entering into the first gallery, it's uh, a historical gallery of uh, First Nations art, uh, which includes uh, art from the many different First Nations which, who inhabit uh, British Columbia. Uh, many, many uh, historical masks. Many of these masks have been repatriated. Uh, Michael has gone around the world buying masks to try and bring them home. Uh, and he has... Uh, 
uh, guaranteed that uh, to the First Nations of British Columbia that they will uh, never leave again. And so, and if the, those uh, tribes are interested in visiting the artifacts from their history, uh, they are brought out and they get a chance to actually uh, work with, the, uh, with these uh, artifacts. And then further, uh, he commissioned uh, 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 a Haida artist, Jim Hart, uh, to carve this uh, dance screen. And this dance screen is actually uh, off the end of this first gallery, and there's a space behind it so that dancers can uh, uh, organize themselves behind there. And then in those events, uh, this little guy gets pulled aside and the door comes open and they dance uh, coming out from behind the screen uh, and there are various holes that they blow feathers through the screen. It's an amazing performance. Uh, and here's Jim, uh, who is a, a chief uh, uh, on uh, Haida Gwaii, which is a very northern island uh, just uh, south of the panhandle of uh, Alaska. And so moving into the uh, other galleries of the, prince of the uh, permanent collection. Uh, this is a, a large mask, as you can see, on the end of the circulation space. And there behind this screen is a stair taking you to upper galleries. And this is the, uh, uh, the temporary exhibition area. And then going to that upper space uh, to uh, another part of uh, temporary exhibitions, uh, which again has this uh, connection back uh, to the landscape. And here you can see the building is actually just hovering out over the ground. You can see that as a consequence of uh, building essentially a bridge, we had the structural capacity to do a number of interesting things, including project the end of the building well beyond the last uh, bearing point. And the other gallery, which we've just recently completed, is in North Vancouver in, British, in, in, in the Greater Vancouver region on a, uh, very, on a really tremendous site. It's located where that red dot is. It looks across uh, the harbor of Vancouver to the downtown. And so it has a really spectacular view of downtown, downtown Vancouver. It's, uh, it's our... Uh, Local uh, ambition is to be uh, Brooklyn and, and New York or Manhattan. And so uh, this relationship you'll see has, uh, has a modest echo of that relationship. And here you can see our site. We were lucky enough to get a waterfront site for this uh, very small uh, uh, museum. It's uh, dedicated to photography and new media. Uh, it, has a very, it used to be called Presentation House. It's now called the Polygon Gallery. Uh, and uh, it's located on the waterfront. Uh, the cladding of the building is interesting. It is clad with the graded, the sort of the, the kinds of, of planks that you make, uh, out of dock, make into docks. And so this is a non-slip uh, uh, stainless steel plank, uh, which we've placed on the face of the building and behind the face of the building, behind that plank, we put uh, polished stainless steel sheets. And so the surface of the building is at one hand rough and rugged like the industrial dock material, 
at the same time, the stainless steel behind reflects whatever's going on. And so with the changing light, with the changing seasons, you get a different sort of uh, animated condition. And here you can see across the harbor to, uh, or across the water to uh, part of the port. And over on the right-hand side through the building, you can see uh, downtown Vancouver. And here uh, into the main lobby, we were required by the city, which I think was exactly the right thing to do, to make all of the ground floor uh, publicly programmed. And so we have a lobby, we have the shop, we have a, uh, a coffee bar, we have a, a restaurant. All of those things surround the ground floor and are open through so that you see the activity that occurs within the building. And then the galleries themselves are moved to the second floor because galleries are inherently introverted and they typically need wall space and so no windows. Uh, and so in this case, we have a transparent ground plane and an opaque upper floor. And moving up to that, and here's the shop, moving up to the gallery floor, you move into the gallery space and this is a gallery that uh, it has a long history of doing fairly uh, unconventional ex exhibitions. And so uh, the director wanted a floor that he could cut into. So it's a wood floor that can be carved away if he wants to make a hole. And the, these uh, paired channels, which support all the services for the gallery space, are also structural so that temporary walls or suspended exhibition can be uh, supported uh, from them. And so, uh, this becomes the sort of the very malleable uh, gallery interior. And here you can see this is what we call the event gallery. It's a, a multi-purpose space which is very, very popular for events, uh, weddings, birthday parties, uh, uh, business meetings. And so not only does this, uh, and th with a fully retractable wall looking out uh, across to the city, uh, but it is also uh, used uh, as, as well for uh, installations. And what they have found was that if they use, if they do video installations in this space primarily, they can demount them and have an event in the evening and get it back up for the next day. And so this space is actually doing double duty uh, pretty much every day of the year. And this uh, last uh, holiday season, uh, an artist uh, was commissioned to light the building. And so the, uh, what you see here are simple Christmas tree lights, but because the background of the wall is a mirrored stainless steel panel, everything gets multiplied many times. And so it really takes on a, a tremendously animated uh, character. Okay, <clears throat> so the other half, uh, research projects. And this is, a, uh, is really something quite different. I should say that, uh, and this is a building from the mid-90s, uh, a school, and this is a model that we made of that school, which is a fragmentary model. We have always done research, uh, and in the old days, it used to be this kind of formal research. Uh, architects all do research, obviously, because we're designing things, but we always did uh, other kinds of research as well, and so this was part of a large body of work that we did of sculptural models. But about a decade ago, we decided to change course. And we decided that we would uh, 
and this is the, the book that uh, Rich mentioned, Material Operations, we, we decided that we would focus on a very direct idea of taking different materials and applying a force to those materials and deforming the material in some way that would turn it into a structural material and a spatial material. And so it began, and here you can see sort of uh, the, there's a number of projects since this, but you can see that there is about a dozen projects here. They take form of, there are wood projects, there are steel projects, there are uh, uh, fabric projects, all sorts of projects which take on different kinds of character. And it began with this project, which is called the Skating Shelters, uh, which was uh, a temporary installation on a frozen river uh, in my hometown of Winnipeg. And we were invited to uh, construct some temporary structures to protect, gets to be 40 below for significant periods of time here. Uh, and when you're skating on the river at 40 below, it's nice to get out of the, out of the wind once in a while. Win Winnipeg is considered to be the windiest place in Canada. And so uh, what we did was we began to try and understand what we would do to construct these temporary shelters on the river. They had to be very light. They had to be materially efficient. And so we looked at a few things. We took a sheet of plastic and we put an elastic band around it. And just the force that the elastic band puts on the sheet of plastic curves it. And as a consequence of being curved, it stands by itself and it protects you. It, it has a, 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 an interior. Or alternately, we took a, 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 a pear apple bag and put a chopstick through it, uh, and that uh, transformed this uh, limp fabric into something that had structural qualities. Well, we began to think about what we would do, and we started working with pieces of wood veneer, trying to understand uh, uh, what we could make. And you can see that we we're really thinking about plywood because we're obviously not making something tiny, which this model was. Uh, and we tried to form the wood veneer in such a way that it had some qualities. One was a very narrow ridge, which would shed the snow, and the other was a volume that you could get into. Well, we then went and bought some thin plywood. We've got a big workshop in our office. We do lots of making. Uh, and we tried to make that thing out of the thin plywood, and it didn't work. We were, we were shocked. We thought the wood veneer would be the clue, and we realized after the fact that wood veneer is fundamentally different than plywood. Plywood is what's called an isotropic material in the sense that it has plies going in both directions. It, before, it behaves in a similar way whether you bend it one way or the other, it resists bending in both directions. Veneer is anisotropic. Wood has a grain and it has an orientation. And in one direction, it's very strong and the other direction is quite flexible. And so the veneer was behaving in a way that was quite different than the plywood. And so we were stumped. The plywood was not gonna get us where we needed to go. Not only that, we couldn't get sheets big enough that you could actually get into. And so we uh, looked around and we found a material called bendy ply. And bendy ply is a three-ply thin sheet of wood uh, which has a thin central uh, veneer and two plies of heavier veneer which are both in the same direction. And so it's very strong in one direction and very uh, flexible in the other direction. And we then layered these sheets of bendy ply one on the other 
to make to aggregate a bigger uh, sheet. And so here you can see three sheets of bendy pi that have been attached to one another, and uh, the beginning idea of a of a platform and a spine. And uh, here we go making it uh, in our shop. And you can see that the bendy ply is very, very similar to the wood veneer because it is anisotropic, not isotropic. And so uh, there were some surprises. So when we really, really cranked, the bendy ply would break. And so we cut a slot and uh, uh, an eye out of it to relieve the strain at that point. And at the point where these two sheets came together, they actually collapsed on one another. So we simply, in, the, in our modeling, we took a scissor and just cut it off. And here we just cut it off and it springs into this natural sort of ellipsis. And it, what this is, is, uh, and this is really a, an important concept, this is what I would call a sprung form. The curvature of the material is not something that we impose. The curvature of the material is what the material, is the shape the material adopts as a consequence of what we're doing to it. And in this case, attaching it to a platform. And so here you see the interior. Where there's only a single layer of bendy ply, we perforated the surface to bring more animation into the interior. And you can see, uh, even where we go to these different layers, the base acknowledges that difference. And so here is the mock-up in our shop. We designed this in, not on drawings, not in models. We designed this full size, just on the floor of the shop, cutting and changing and fitting. Once we'd done this, we simply took it apart, laid the sheets flat because it's a sprung form. They're not permanently deformed, they're only in that position because of their re being restrained. Uh, we just made patterns for all of the components and we sent those patterns to Winnipeg, which is 2,000 miles away from Vancouver, and they made the things out of the patterns there. And at the same time, we started working back in model form with the wood veneer to understand how the different pieces would relate to one another because we had a modest budget but it allowed us to make six of these things. And so we worked hard to find the arrangement for the six, which you see here. And here you see them on the river uh, in Winnipeg. And so this, and uh, if you can see the bottom of the screen, it's minus 30 degrees uh, centigrade uh, at the time. And my good friend, Jimmy Dow, uh, who's now an ancient Chinese photographer, uh, was there to shoot this. And he was trained by Ansel Adams, and so he's a, uh, tripod guy. Everything has to be very carefully uh, organized. At 30 below, uh, his discipline was, te was really tested. So this shot was a tripod shot. After that, it was handheld all the way. And so uh, intrepid souls in Winnipeg at 30 below zero, skating along the river. <laughs> there weren't many, I got to tell you. And here you see these forms, uh, which uh, are simply the curvature and shape that comes out of restraining the base and fixing the joint. And all of these forms just spring naturally. There is no, nothing predetermined about these shapes. They're entirely the will of the material. And then this is the interior. Even the benches that we made for people to sit on the little stools are made in the same way. And then at the end of the day, 
uh, my, my friend Jimmy has got great discipline, so he was able to hang around, but it was 40 below. Uh, and, but this was a tripod shot uh, with uh, the interiors illuminated. And the, this shot uh, was uh, in, in the design world was, went viral, and uh, we got uh, calls from all over the world. And we've had many requests to build it in different parts of the world, including uh, two summers ago, or summer, two summers ago, yeah, at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, they reconstructed the skating shelters uh, as part of their exhibition on plywood. So uh, while that project was underway, I was teaching uh, a studio at Yale University. Uh, and the studio that I had uh, was, uh, the notion was that we would uh, build a workspace for young people who were not particularly gifted academically, but had great uh, sort of hand skills. Uh, we would make a workshop for those people, the really talented maker people. And we went to the Eli Whitney Museum and Workshop in Hamden, Connecticut, and, uh, to, which was the theoretical site of our studio. And I met William Brown, who was the director of the uh, uh, museum, and he said to me, you need to look at a video called uh, Between the Folds. And I said, what, what, what's it about? He said, origami. And I said, well, why would I be interested in origami? He said, just look at it, just look at it. And so I looked at it, and uh, origami doesn't really interest me because you take a piece of paper and you fold it 100 times, 200 times, and you make an elephant or, you, or whatever. And that never really captured my imag imagination. But there was one guy in the video, Paul Jackson, who was uh, teaching origami uh, in Israel. Uh, and he said that one of his students approached him and said, um, can you do origami with only one fold? And he said, well, no, you need to have many folds to make anything. It takes you know, dozens and hundreds of folds to make something. But he began to think about that idea of making origami with a single fold. And so this is uh, our reconstruction of one of his exercises. You take a piece of origami paper, you fold it, you, because the nature of paper, which is fibrous, you can push, you can deform that fold, and you can create, you can bend the fold. And as a consequence, you can have this self-supporting structure, which you see on the end. And we made many of these things, and they're unbelievably beautiful. And all the curves and the sort of the sail-like forms that you get here are a direct result of the, simply the folding. It's not something, again, that you impose. It's letting the material take the form it wants. And so I thought, well, if you can do that with paper, can you do it with steel? Can you? So I went into the shop, and I got a, a piece of 24-gauge uh, galvanized sheet metal, and I scored it with a mat knife, and I put a hole in it in the middle, and then I folded it, and I was forced the, the fold to break, to bend at the hole. Now, if you have ever worked with steel and you, or metal of any kind, and you folded it, you will understand how unbelievably strong that material is because unlike paper, which is fibrous, it's crystalline. It does not ease. And so forcing the steel was only possible because I made a hole in it and because it was very, very light gauge. But that wasn't what I was trying to do. I was trying to do something that was as big as this room. And so uh, I took this uh, sheet of steel to a number of steel fabricators in the city and I said, 
uh, I'd like you to make something like this, but make it 10 times bigger. Can you do that? And they said, no problem. What we'll do is we'll take the sheet and we'll cut it into triangles. We'll roll it in our, uh, uh, in our rolling mill. We'll weld it back together again and we'll have that shape. And I said, no, that's exactly what I don't want you to do because the roll that you put in it will be a contrived roll. It'll be an artificial shape, not something that comes out of the forces within the material. And so they said, well, go away because it can't be done. And so I went away and I was working with a couple of young, uh, uh, a young architect and, the, and a student in the office and we were sort of putting our heads together to try and understand how to, uh, to solve this problem. And we began to invent a machine and we ultimately made six machines and this took us four months over the summer and we started with the top machine and we ended up with the bottom machine and they are in, in, incrementally bigger and more refined and more powerful. And they're basically wood and steel constructions which are designed to break a piece of steel, to fold a piece of steel like a press break would do in a steel shop, but also to bend it across the fold at the same time, which is impossible. And so uh, our, this is what the machine started out looking like and we made a, a crease in one side and tried to force the uh, the steel to do that and we sort of got some success but not much and we began to figure out different ways of doing it and we quickly came to the notion that the brake had to have a joint in the middle and the joint in the middle would allow us to bend it and the, what we learned was if you bend it and fold it simultaneously not sequentially you can do that you can make it go both ways and so we slowly made using thicker and bigger sheets with bigger and bigger uh, machines. We made these machines and we finally got to, this is number five. Now number six, this is the largest sheet of stainless steel we can get in Vancouver, which is five feet by 12 feet in dimension. And we made a machine that was big enough to break that, that piece of of uh, this is what you can see. And what we to, in order to put the force in, there are bolts that run along the entire length. And so what we do is we drill holes on the diagonal of the sheet, put the sheet into the material, and then start cranking the, the, the bolts together to force the machine to fold the steel. And at the same time, we lift the machine in the middle to cause the form to bend. And so here you see our courtyard you can see the machine getting set up starting over here and following down you can see the sheet of steel being brought in. The machine is put together, we start cranking it, we start hoisting it and here you can see again the machine and then the final product at the end. And so uh, this is the sheet of steel in, still in the machine and this is the sheet of steel in our courtyard and this is really interesting because it is a very robust structure because the fold is inherently very strong and the arches are very strong. And those arches are extremely beautiful curves because they're not geometric. They're completely natural, sinuous curves that come out of the forces. It's just the resolution of forces moving their way to the edge of the sheet which results in this shape. And so we, this is a, a project which we're trying to convince somebody to build. It's only twice as big as what we'd made in our courtyard and it forms this 
a landscape uh, element. While we were doing that, we got a call from Comme des Garçons in, uh, in Tokyo. Five minutes? No, it's going to be 15 minutes. Sorry. So I'm, I'm going to buck the system here. Uh, so we got a call from uh, uh, Ray Kuwakaba, who uh, is the designer from uh, Comme des Garçons. She said she saw our skating shelters. She loved the skating shelters. She's doing a new shop in Ginza. She wants to have something in, uh, that we would make for her in the Ginza shop, except it can't be combustible. It has to be non-combustible. We said, no worries, because we're working with stainless steel. And so, and by the way, this is some of her work. And I think, what do you think? <laughs> I, I think, anyway. So we said, OK, we're going to take our uh, 5 by 12 sheet of uh, stainless steel. We're going to take four of them. And we're going to put them together and make two of these, uh, uh, just set them on end and uh, hang. Uh, she wanted a display and change room. And so the, the, the uh, drapery is for the change room. And so we made this model. And by the way, uh, we make these models out of thin sheets of plastic. And they behave unbelievably uh, well, uh, predictive of the, sh uh, of the curves that we get in the steel, which is amazing. Anyway, we sent it to her, and she said, no way. It's way too artistic. I don't want that. I want something like the skating shelters. And so we said, oh, well, the client's always right. Uh, and so we went back, and we designed this version of stainless steel like the skating shelters. And we took all the lessons of the skating shelters in terms of patterns. And so we made this model out of, it's only this big, out of plastic. Then we took it apart, and we measured it. And we started making the, so these are the pieces that uh, you can make that out of. And these are the folds. So these straight lines are where you fold it. And you can fold them and then join the folds, uh, which use, is different than the way you would do it with the wood, because this is steel. And so this is the language of the parts. And I'm speeding up to try and meet my deadline. So here it's being fabricated in Vancouver. Now, we have to build them in Vancouver. We have to create them. We have to ship them to Japan. They have to, because they can't use the elevator in the shop, which is on the second floor, because it's for somehow not allowed in their lease, and it's too big to go up the stair, we have to design it so you can break it down. So they unpacked it on the street in Ginza, broke it into pieces, took the pieces up and reassembled them. So here they are, here we are making them in this stainless steel shop, the two of them. Interesting problems, which we never understood. We wanted to stiffen the edge, and we wanted to, the edge is quite sharp because it's a very thin sheet of steel. And so we couldn't use the plate that we had imagined, but we found that a rod could be easily attached to that edge because it's, it travels on the circumference, and it gives you a very beautiful edge condition. We also had to invent a door because it, one was a change room, and so we built a version of it in wood in our shop and played with the door, and here it is. It's a fabric door. Uh, with the light from inside. And the light inside is an luminous floor, which has three fluorescent lights below it. And this is the final, this is the, the uh, we call them cocoons, uh, shot through the aperture at the top, looking back down. And here you can see the pieces uh, being disassembled uh, and then reassembled, as they will be in Tokyo. The floor going in. And here is the final 
work in the shop floor in Vancouver, and here it is in Ginza. So <coughs> mine never stops. So I was thinking, I really want to make ways to get these things to be really big. I, I want to make them to be big, but you, these are all working on sheets and bending sheets. And when you start wanting to be big, you can't get sheets that big. And so I came up with the idea of, uh, I noticed in the previous uh, uh, cocoon project that there was one point along the curving surface where you could put a straight edge, what we call a ruled surface. And so here, uh, I came up with the idea of developing uh, um, a truss which would support uh, curving guide rails which, onto which you'd put two by sixes. And those two by sixes would be moving slightly in relationship to one another so that then you could shotcrete the sides. And so here is the notion, it's a theoretical project. You're trying to get through some steep grade. You cut a slot in the grade. You construct uh, a concrete, reinforced concrete retaining wall which has a big amplitude curve at the top and a small amplitude curves at the bottom to act like corrugations to increase the structural capacity of the uh, form as it as the load increases at the bottom of the retaining wall. And it's really just the same, we call this, the, the other projects which take materials we call uh, morphological operations and the ones that take bits, sticks and pieces we call relational operations, but they accomplish the same thing as you can see in this diagram. And so here is the truss, here are the guides, here are the two by sixes that are going on, then we shotcrete and this is the space that you get out of that form. And so that then uh, was translated into an ideas competition that we entered in Korea. It's, uh, the, the idea was we would construct a large wood vault uh, out of 14-foot pieces of timber. And so here you can see the notion that you take your pieces of timber, this is one, two, and these are joints which tie them together and, which, and they're always staggered, so they act in, as a monolithic continuous structure. I don't know. And so here you see the outcome of that. You see that uh, all these little tiny pieces of wood are tied together, form this large, uh, really beautiful undulating surface which has uh, remarkable structural pro uh, properties. And so, I don't know why this is doing this, but it's really not behaving. It's not behaving at all. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. So, it looks like, so what's happening is that all the pieces of wood are tied together and the forces, and then there's a skin, a shotcrete skin, which is put on them to act as a diaphragm. And then, oh yeah, keep on, that's great. Keep on going. Further. Oh, great, great, great. No, keep going. Keep going, keep going. Here we are, right here. Perfect. So here are those forms that come out of simply putting 14-foot uh, pieces of timber together. It's very much like a basket, woven, a woven basket. And you can see that all the pieces are straight. So when you do a building section through on one axis, all of the cuts are vertical, 
And when you do a building section in the opposite direction, all of the cuts are curvilinear. So you get these phenomenal curving volumes simply by the incremental adjustment of one piece of wood relative to another piece of wood and the resulting space. Okay, the, one quick project and then the Temple of Light and we're done. So this is my, my next career as a sculptor. This is called Cut Drawn, and we're missing this somehow. But the notion is that you take uh, sheets of steel plate and you cut with a laser uh, slots in them in a certain pattern. And that pattern is a, a refined pattern that comes after making hundreds of these things. And we begin in plastic, and then we move to light gauge metal, and then we go to heavy plate. And we've worked up to three-eighths thick plate uh, with this stuff. And so you can see there's an endless variety of shapes and cuts that you can do. And here's one. This again is plastic. So this is a, a rectangle and we're pulling it. So this is called cut drawn. So we cut it and then we draw it. And the plastic is doing this. And then we're going to get and this is now, this is a quarter inch plate that has been pulled in the same way. We broke the biggest crane in the steel shop in Vancouver uh, when we were doing one of these because the forces we were in excess of 20,000 pounds of tensile force when we pull these things there. Because, I mean, you're pulling through a, a solid sheet of steel. It's just an unbelievable thing. But in Blaine, Washington, which is just over the border, not far from us, they test chain for the US Navy in a pit. And they have put it in a pit because if it ever fails, the repercussions are unbelievable. And so my ambition is to pull something in that pit. So here is the video. from that to this. And so these are, I've got many of these things now. And in fact, I've been cut off because I have no more room to store them. The office is full of them. Every, everyone's desk has one of these on it. <laughs> this one, uh, this one is about, um, it's about 10 feet uh, long. The, the, that's, I call these the mediums. And I'm, I have one uh, large that is uh, leaning against the wall in the studio, but I'm, I'm planning to go to Blaine to do extra large. Uh, okay, last project. So this is uh, the Temple of Light. Uh, it's, uh, 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 it's, for a, it's a temple for a yoga ashram in Kootenay Bay, British Columbia. Uh, it is uh, the... There's a slide that is there that isn't showing. This is the existing or the former dome burning. So you have to imagine that. So here are the ladies who founded the ashram. This is uh, Swami Radha. 
uh, and she founded this in the 60s, and it's been a going concern since then. In the 80s through 2000, they built a dome uh, temple, uh, which uh, uh, four years ago caught fire and burned. And this is the, temp the beautiful temporary polyethylene temple that they put up while they waited for us to design the new temple. And so this is the, the new temple. There are certain principles which we had to abide by. One is it had to have eight faces because uh, in, uh, part of their doctrine is that all religions of the world are welcome and they recognize that there are eight religions. The uh, other groups have nine, uh, but uh, uh, they have eight. Uh, and that was uh, for, uh, and, and we had to use the existing foundation of the building. And so we have eight bearing points, which are the eight foundation points of the former building. And then we constructed a new auxiliary building. And again, moving through it, you can see that this form uh, has those eight, one, two, three, four bearing points with the, and is uh, a relational structure. And what it is, is uh, based on the very simple idea and you can see the building section doesn't look simple, but it is simple. And the idea is that you have a truss. You have eight trusses. They spring from here to a ring beam in the middle, and they have a simple curve on the inside and a complex curve on the outside. Originally, that was a steel truss with glazing. But for budget reasons, because it's a low-budget project, we ultimately had to build it out of a, as a stud frame wall in large part. Uh, no. Okay, we're missing. So this is the idea that you simply attach a straight piece of wood from the bottom to the top of the adjacent one, and they then form this undulating surface, and then we cut the bottom out. We, uh, and we were able to build this because of Spearhead, the same people who built this roof. So Spearhead happened to be in Nelson, British Columbia, which is across the lake from the temple. And so this is, and the temple is a very, very sophisticated, high-performance building envelope. It's, uh, we, uh, it's uh, triple glazing, very high insulation levels. It, we have a photovoltaic as well as geothermal uh, uh, to energize the project. So the, the ashram is very committed to sustainability. And here you see one of the eight petals. And you can see this is just a poor digital print, but you can see all these straight lines. That is a reflection of the fact that these curves are actually simply aggregated straight lines. And this is a shop drawing from uh, Spearhead's office. So here, this is the floor of the, I'm, there's a whole bunch of these, but I'm gonna, this is this thing. I'm gonna work over here. <laughs> I'll, I'll see. Just go, just keep going, right, run, run right through them. So this is just one piece, there, this is, one quarter of one of the eight petals being put together in their shop. Keep going. Here are some other pieces. The pieces are all coated with a, 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 a liquid applied roof membrane. Moved across the lake to the uh, arches, which you can see here, and the arches have the simple inside shape and the complex outside shape. Here the pieces are flying in. Keep going. Keep going. And you can see these are all straight pieces of wood. And it's actually reversed because 
these members are not, gra the gravity is going that way. These guys are actually just there to cause the plywood diaphragm to behave the way we want it to behave. Keep on going. So, all those, except, except for the primary beams, everything else is straight pieces of wood. Keep going. So here is the building as it's finished, overlooking the lake. From the forest, keep going, keep going, keep going. Straight pieces of wood. As you can see, this ceiling, which is simply straight pieces of wood which have the, are, are an example of the principle of the structure of the building. Thank you very much.